Well, if you have your Bibles this morning, I would like to invite you again to turn to Proverbs chapter 25. And uh, you know that uh, last week we talked about uh, one of, of what I think uh, is the all-time issues that we face in churches today in, in New Testament Christianity, especially in the time period <clears throat> that we live in, how that so many of God's people are, are actually used to the wrong spirit um, to destroy not only people's lives, their credibility, their, their uh, character, but ultimately in time uh, uh, the work of God. You know, what we do and how we either respond or react to the long-term effect on the cause of Christ of somebody, you know, sowing discord and uh, saying something that uh, they have no business saying to someone who many times have no, no real issue with somebody or something. And we talked last week about at the end out of Proverbs, uh, excuse me, Job chapter 26, verse 4, whose spirit comes from you? Uh, Galatians 5, verses 22 through 23 talks about the uh, nine fruit of the Holy Spirit of God and how that those are the nine characteristics of Christ that when we have in our life, and we went through them last week, that how that that represents the uh, Spirit of God in your life and how God will work through you. Then I showed you in Proverbs chapter 6, verses 1 through 6, that they're uh, in, uh, talking about the sins of the saints, the things that God's people get into. And there we saw the spirit of the devil, or more appropriately, the spirit of, of Antichrist. You know, when we think the, of the word Antichrist, we always think of the man of sin that shows up in the tribulation period, and, and that is true. But I want you to know that uh, there's, a, there's a rapture of the church and the second coming of Christ, and then there's the second coming of the Antichrist. And of course, um, in both cases, long before either one of them showed up, they both sent their spirit here. The day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit of God showed up, and you can, you can bet that the uh, unholy spirit of Antichrist, in fact, 1 John chapter 4, verse 3, says, uh, and this is the spirit of Antichrist, whereof ye have heard that it should come. And then he says that even now it is in the world. And it's nothing more than the, the influence of doing wrong versus doing right and not following what the Word of God says when it comes to dealing with all the issues in life. And how that we are not to, you know, we talked about last week how we are not to live our lives as Christians, allowing rumors and accusations or slander, whether they be true or whether they be false, is immaterial, enter into our world. And I showed you that if you have a legitimate issue with somebody, and you know what, that's the key word, a legitimate issue. Many people don't even know the facts of whatever happened to somebody. Somebody just tells them, and uh, it never affected them one way or the other. You don't have a legitimate issue. But if you do, how did you go to that person? And the Bible says last week in verse 9 that you debate the cause with that person himself. You sit down and find out both sides of the story, not taking what somebody tells you uh, to be the right uh, story uh, or the whole truth. You know, I remember I gave you, and I hope you marked it in your Bible, I gave you one of the most incredible verses uh, in Proverbs 18, 13. It says that he that answereth a matter before he heareth it, it is folly and shame unto him. And uh, then I gave you the example in 1 Kings chapter 3, uh, the Solomon principle. You remember how the Bible says to prove all things, and you find the answer or the, the example of that in uh, 1 Kings 3 when Solomon has to deal with the two women over the baby. And I, I, I showed you, you know, all of those things as we walk through you. And then I told you that how many times, I know it's been true in all of my ministry dealing with people, how many times that the person who slanders or the person who backbites or the person who is a talebearer will have a hidden agenda? Their, their motive is not to fix anything. If they were, then they would handle it biblically. But they have a driven agenda because of the driven by the wrong spirit to actually go in and to, and, to, and to ruin somebody or to hurt somebody. And the Bible is full of it. Proverbs is full of it. Proverbs 10, 18 you know, in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 11, talks about people who slander. Proverbs 11, 13, and, and Proverbs 18, 8, and 20, 19, 26, 20, 26, 22, talks about the talebearers. And in Romans chapter 1, verse 3, talks about the backbiters, people who go behind your back. And that people, how that people are saved and on their way to heaven will forsake 
the Spirit of God and all of the fruit of that Spirit and yield themselves to an unholy spirit of, of all the things that are listed in the seven things we talked about last week in Proverbs chapter 6, verse 16. And, uh, you know, you can't have both. You can't have half of God's spirit in what you do and half of the devil's spirit in what you do. You just can't do that. It's one or the other. And as Paul said in Romans chapter 16, verse 17, that we as God's people to protect people, to protect the Word of God, protect the church of God. He says, mark those who cause division among you. Make an example of them so everybody knows that that's not what this church is going to permit to happen. And then we saw how lying and bearing false witness and slander, gossip, sowing discord uh, will be used to the devil to destroy the number one element that the church has to have to really be productive, and that's unity. Everybody being a singleness of heart and mind based on the Word of God. And that's the real agenda behind what the devil's trying to do. And if the devil destroys the church of Jesus Christ, not that he will, but if he ever could, he wouldn't destroy it with the world. He'd destroy it with his own people. He'd do the same thing to the church that he did with the nation of Israel. It got corrupted from within and then went from there. So that was last week, and we're going to move on today. And today we will enter into the next three verses, and they are rich in what they hold for us. And yet again, you know, in our walk with the Lord and what God wants us to see. I want to read them for you. It's going to be Proverbs chapter 25, verses 11, 12, and 13. And that it starts there in verse 11. A word fitly spoken is like apples of gold and pictures of silver. As an earring of gold and an ornament of fine gold, so is a wise reprover upon an obedient ear. As the cold of snow in the time of harvest, so is a faithful messenger to them that send him, for he refreshes the soul of his masters. Will, would you stand up and ask God's blessing on the service this morning? Father, I ask that you please uh, move upon our hearts and minds as uh, you use Bob to speak to us, Lord. I thank you for you giving him to us at this time, Lord. And I ask that you open our hearts and minds. Let it not be hardened. And let us hearken unto him, Lord. Because we know that if we're going to hear from you, it's going to be through your word, Lord. And let us get understanding, Lord, as you speak through this, your man, Lord, and, and help us to be obedient and uh, just to obey and to put it into action in our lives. In all things, we ask for your name's sake. Amen. Amen. Now, if you're here this morning and you you want to you wanna help people, you want to work with people, and I know we've got a host of people that in, on various levels that, that do that, and, and, and I want you to listen very carefully today. This is going to really help you. Uh, I think it's going to put much of what you do into a context, not that you didn't already have one, but uh, I, I want you to listen carefully as I come down through here. Now, I read three verses for today, but we're not going to get through ver- three verses. We're just going to look at verse 11 today. There's so much in here that uh, I want to just be able to take the time to, to get it all out. I want us to look at the phrase in verse 11 where it starts out, a word fitly spoken. Now, we would be reading this and we would just think, and, 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 and rightly so, that it's talking about uh, the Word of God. Anytime uh, you give uh, the Bible out to somebody, that you're given the, the, the good Word of God, and it's going to be good for that person. And, and that would be true. But there's more to that here that I want us to see today. And I want to show you something else here that I think will really help you. Now, the verse will be an incredible key to, to all of the Bible and how it will uh, relate to us. And so just listen to me for a few minutes. Obviously, take your notes or do what you want to do. But uh, let me have your ears for a moment. And uh, uh, there is much here. Like I said, we're going to uh, just take this one verse and then one verse next week and then the week after, I think. But definitely just one verse today. You know, a couple of months ago, I preached a message when we were back in chapter 24. I preached a message on verse 27, a verse that talks about getting yourself ready to do the work of God that he's called you to do, the work of the ministry. And back there in that verse in chapter 24, 27, it said this, Prepare thy work without and, mark, uh, and make it fit for thyself uh, in the field, and afterwards build thy house. 
Now, you remember I told you that that was a great picture of, of the ministry. We know from Matthew 13 that the field is the world. We know that you're going to have to build your house, which is your body, to serve the Lord, the temple. And, uh, you know, uh, it takes a preparation. And it was a great verse dealing with you and me, getting into the book and seeing God's plan that he has for you in his overall plan. And then here it comes, how you fit into that plan. Prepare thy work without and make it fit for thyself. Fitting yourself into the work of God. And that was the key word back then. It's also going to be the key word today. And I want to make the parallels between the two. Now, I talk a lot about patterns in the Bible. I talk a lot about principles. I talk a lot about models and types and pictures in the Bible. Uh, they're different words that basically mean the same thing. And uh, that's because uh, the whole Bible, from a practical standpoint, will wrap itself around patterns. In Romans chapter 1, verses 19 and 20, uh, Paul said, "...the invisible things of him from the creation are clearly seen and understood by the things that God made." What does he mean by that? It means that everything God made physically will show you something spiritually if you know how to put the pattern together to see how God used everything he made in a little creation to show us the things that we can't understand. This is why Jesus all the time in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John was going back and using illustrations about animals, the sky, plants, the ground, uh, sowing seed. He was using all of those practical things that everybody was doing. But he knew that those very things that he was using set up a pattern of spiritual things that, that they needed to see. And uh, when you get into Hebrews chapter 8, it talks about the, the tabernacle that God gave Moses. And I don't know if you know or not, back in the Old Testament, uh, when Moses was up on the mountain, Mount Sinai, God gave him all the instructions for everything that he was to do that was going to uh, put the nation of Israel on the map, so to speak, as the nation of God's people. So when he came down, he had all the plans. And one of the most intricate pieces that God gave Moses to give to Israel was the concept of the tabernacle. Now, the tabernacle was later, as they go through their journey, once they get settled in Jerusalem, it becomes the temple. Then they, and Solomon builds that temple. That replaces the tabernacle. But before it had a permanent place, it was a temporary tabernacle that they put up, took down, put up, took down as they went through uh, their wilderness journey. That tabernacle was absolutely key to Israel's relationship with God. And it was an incredible thing. And he told him in Hebrews chapter 8, verse 5, that when you make that tabernacle, Moses, make sure you make that tabernacle after the pattern that I showed you in the mount. Now, I don't know how God did that. I don't know if he had a big old uh, overhead projector up there. He said, okay, Moses, here's plan one, plan two. Here's what you do. But on that mountain, he gave him a pattern. And that pattern is what he had to go by. And let me just say something to you. Moses didn't have the option to deviate from the pattern. He didn't have the option to think, ah, you know, I think I can save two days' work by doing this. No, that's what I do. That's what you do. That's what we all do. We always think when it comes down to whatever God tells us that we got the edge on it. We're just a little bit smarter than God in the thing. And uh, Moses didn't have that option. And God made it clear to him, look, Moses, make sure you follow the pattern that I gave you. And the, the references on patterns in the Bible, I want to give them to you because they're all very important. Exodus chapter 25, verses 9 through 40, almost the whole chapter. Numbers chapter 8, verse 4. Joshua chapter 22, 28. 2 Kings chapter 16, verse 10. If it isn't 10, it's 20. I can't tell how I wrote that here. First Chronicles chapter 28, verses 11 through 19, and then Ezekiel chapter 43, verse 10. Those are Old Testament passages that show you how God was using and does use everything he does through a pattern. 
Now, when you get over to the New Testament in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 16, and Titus chapter 2, verse 7, he doesn't stop. You know what he says? He says that you and I, as the child of God, in the life that we live with Christ before others, should be a, here it comes, pattern of good works to everybody else. Everything that God does, he will do by a pattern, and he will have a pattern to it. Now, our verse says, stay with me now, a word fitly spoken. Now, here's what you got here. And I'm going to give it to you, then we're going to come back, and we're going we're to tweak it a couple of different ways. But a prepared child of God. If you prepare yourself in the Word of God that you're going to uh, get your own life first together, and then work with the pe- people that God gives you, and that's what we are called to do. A prepared child of God will know how to take any given situation that you have to deal with in your own life or as you're working with somebody else. You know how to take any given situation that God presents you with and then how using the patterns in the Bible, dealing with that issue, how you will then take the principles that go along with the pattern and fit those principles into the problem you're dealing with. It's just that simple. Thursday night, we had a great example of that when, and it doesn't get any better than Thursday night than when it did last week, when that little Isaac guy, you know, started asked the question about eternal security and how to be saved, and immediately, I began to, you know, see where he was, probably where he was going and what his issue was. And I just allowed the Holy Spirit of God to take that thing and run with it, and right there before everybody in Bible study, when we got to that point, I just said, hey, here's, I told him what I did. And uh, you notice I didn't tell him, and this is so key in when you're working with people. And many of you, my phone blew up all night that night and all the next day. So many of you said you learned something from that. And, uh, but I want to tell you something. The greatest thing that you want to learn is the fact that when he's having his questions, I didn't tell him what God would do for him. I told him what God did for me. And that was the conduit pipe, so to speak. That was the, that was the non-threatening thing. That he saw that if it worked for me in the same situation, he, and what did he do? He stopped right in the middle of that thing, grabbed the mic, and asked God to save him right there on the spot in Bible study. And all that happened was is that I saw where he was going, And I knew that there was a pattern that I had to cut out of the Bible to give that to him. And it worked. It'll always work because everything that we do will be established by a a pattern. Uh, The absolute incredible uh, responsibility. Boy, I tell you, and I, I cannot emphasize this enough. The absolute incredible responsibility for you and for me Handling the Word of God with people correctly. And 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 2 says that uh, there's those that are handling the Word of God deceitfully. And I cannot impress upon you that if you're going to work with somebody in the Bible, you have to know what you're doing. And when it comes to pastors, in most cases, teachers, counselors, over the years I've seen some absolutely Terrible advice, horrendous advice, given out that really hurt the situation uh, and in many cases absolutely destroyed it. I mean, I've seen pastors give parents advice on dealing with their children. That was a recipe for losing your child. I've seen, I've seen couples go in and, and talk to a pastor or a counselor, marital counselor, And the advice they get is absolutely ludicrous and almost guarantees that you're never going to fix that thing and put it back together. I've seen pastors and churches, you know, where they, uh, you know, where they, where they look at women and the pastors from the pulpit and the uh, and, and a while back, there was a an evangelist. He's dead now, but he had a whole legacy of children who were about as legalistic as you could get. And probably they, in their writings and their books, did more damage uh, to people than the devil ever thought about doing on his best day. They actually wrote books, pamphlets, and held seminars how, and telling in churches 
how the woman had absolutely no say in anything in the family, that she's basically a doormat, that she doesn't have any say. If her husband beats her, she's supposed to take it. And, and in the process, the idea is that if you submit yourself to all this abuse, that through all of that, God will reach down and save him. Well, I got some news for you. Taking abuse may let him, God, reach him, but so will a ball bat when he goes to sleep at night. In other words, the bottom line is you as a wife do, do have a say. You are not a doormat. I, I categorize those people as Muslim Christians. And they're nowhere connected to the Muslim faith, but they treat their women like the Muslims do. And they hold them in, a, in a, an absolute a, a, a hold that they just can't have any say in anything. That the husband's always right. Well, I got news for you guys. We're not always right. And it's a thing where I've seen that ruin so many so many women and so many relationships. You know, I, I've seen men and women who had strongholds in their life. And the absolute advice they get is just terrible. I've seen churches that have a, re- a recovery for addiction, whether it be drugs or whatever they may be. And they'll have a night of the week where they have a, a, a recovery night. You can drive down the street and see them. And we have a, a new chance recovery program, this or that. And you go together there and you, you, you have a little meeting. And I'll tell you what they do. They get somebody's worldly book put out by the government or put out by some medical deal. And they get somebody that's totally unqualified to teach it. And they just sit there and read the book. Now, I'm all for recovery. And I think that every church needs to have a recovery program for whatever strongholds or addiction you have. And we do have a recovery program. It meets on Sunday morning. It meets on Thursday night. It meets on prayer group up there in the morning. And it meets on whatever else that you need. The advice that we give out today doesn't fit the situation that people are dealing with. You know, when you walk into Hallmark Cards, there's a big sign there, or at least there was at one time, that says, we have a card that fits every occasion. And that's true. And the Bible has a pattern that fits every issue that you're going to get into in life. That's just like Hallmark Cards in that aspect. And each issue that you face, every issue that you personally face or you deal with with somebody will have a pattern based on principles of truth that must be applied if you're going to fix it. What you do is you fit the Word of God. He said a word fitly spoken. You fit the Word of God, the principles, to the situation. But you have to understand the patterns. Most pastors, 99% of them anyhow, they, 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 they could do this in no way, shape, or form. They're simply not qualified in the Bible to be able to do that. This is why, just so you can connect the dots, these big-time pastors out there that run these mega churches, you'll never get in to see them with your personal problems. If they were put on a spot to give you, I could ask them five questions, and they wouldn't have the answers to it, and I'm telling you, it would expose them as the front man from some big organization that he knows nothing about the Bible, but he's a great speaker. He's a great communicator but he knows nothing about the Word of God. So when you got a problem, he'll send you to somebody else over here, some professional, and they'll try to deal with your problems. A little guy on Thursday night got saved. He's been coming several weeks now. And uh, a couple of weeks ago, he, he asked a question. He's, he's got a question every week, which I think is great. A couple of weeks ago, he asked a question out of Mark chapter 10. And out of Mark chapter 10, uh, it was about the rich young lawyer, whoever, who, uh, you know, said good ma- good, why one Jesus was called good. Later on, he told one of our people in the church that he goes to his own church, and he asked that same question on, on Wednesday night Bible study, and his pastor told him to figure it out for himself. And he said, he says, you know, I, I feel, I feel, you know, I feel like, you know, if I ask any questions about the Bible, 
that I'm doing wrong. And you're not doing wrong by asking questions about the Bible, but what you are doing is exposing a phony pastor who couldn't preach his way out of a wet paper bag and knows nothing about the Bible. I mean, if you go to the pastor who's supposed to be teaching you the Bible and he tells you to figure it out for yourself, there's a pastor, another example. I have hundreds of them, but I'll just use a couple. I was a pastor in the town here who, who uh, uh, you know, he had a situation with a husband and wife. And it was a very bad situation. It was a terrible situation. There were so many things here that had to go down deep that had to be fixed. But this kid doesn't have a clue. And so he gets this couple in here and they're having major problems. His answer to their issues is, you know what? You need to start dating again. And start dating again and fall in love with each other all over again. And like that will solve your problem. Look, love potion number nine will not work. There's some deep issues here. There's some deep problems here. And they have to be addressed before you ever can do what you got to do. But that's where it's at. And in, in cases like that, it, 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 they get a, wind up getting a divorce. It turns into a disaster. The pastor's job is to teach his people the simple patterns of life through the principles of the Word of God and then help them apply them. And yes, keep them accountable to them. But he can't because he doesn't know the patterns himself, so he's left to making it up on his own. And it always ends in disaster. He cannot take a word fitly spoken, and fit it to the problem. My advice to them is J. Truck Driving School. You said, well, I've been to Bible college. Well, try Barber College this time because you got to get out of what you're doing. You have no clue of what's going on. Now, in our people ministry here, the people ministry is Nothing more than a, a bunch of people who are dedicated, very simply, to uh, the patterns and the principles. We simply started in Genesis and walked through uh, laying out and developing every pattern and principle that shows you how everything works, every cause into effect. And we just started in Genesis. For instance, uh, in Genesis chapter 3, the first time the serpent shows up. And he shows up to Eve and he says, Yea, hath God said. And we took that as a pattern of deception to show you in the church age exactly what the devil is going to do when he wants to destroy the church. He says, Yea, hath God said. And then he changed what God said. That's a pattern. It's an unbroken pattern that has stood the test of time now for 6,000 years. And that's not all. You'll find that, uh, you'll find, and again, scholarship laughs at this. The law first mentioned in the Bible. The first time something is mentioned for the first time in the Bible will set a precedent for a pattern. You know in Genesis 3, he's called a serpent. And that sets a pattern of the devil as a serpent. You know in 2 Chronicles 21, he's now first time called Satan. And there's a reason for that, because now it sets a pattern of his operation as Satan, which means accuser. In Matthew chapter 4, first time, he's called the devil. And you see a pattern emerge by that name. In Nehemiah chapter 2, he's called the dragon. First time. The first time you find each one of his names, it sets a pattern differently of how he's going to operate. In Isaiah 14, for the first time, he's called Lucifer. In John chapter 17, the first time, he's called the son of perdition. 
out of 2 Corinthians 4, 4, it's called the God of this world. Every time it pops up for the first time, it establishes a pattern. If you want to know how he's going to work in any given situation, go back to the name, see what the pattern is, and then put them all together. That's how it works. In Genesis chapter 24, you have a bride being searched out for Isaac. Abraham sends out Eleazar, his servant. And you see him going to find a bride for Isaac. We know that in, an inspir- in a doctrinal picture, that's a picture of you and I, Christ coming us as a Gentile bride. But there, it establishes a pattern because in that chapter 24 are 19 patterns, principles of finding a spouse. You follow those 19 and you won't get a dud. It's the pattern to look for in the person you marry. In 1 Corinthians chapter 7, it's the New Testament teaching on divorce, marriage, and remarriage. You have 20 patterns, 20 principles that teaches you everything you need to know if you're going to deal in those three situations. You have Jacob and Esau, Genesis chapter 27. Ah, the pattern of a deception. Six patterns in that story of somebody that's going to deceive somebody else or try to deceive you. Learn those six patterns, you'll never get fooled. They're foolproof. You know why? Because they're in a story in the Bible and they form a pattern based on principles. And you know what happens? Jacob wants to steal the birthright and the blessing from his father. So he, 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 he's the youngest. Esau's the oldest. And he knows that Esau is going to get it. So what does he do? His mama gets involved. And she says, here's what you do, son. You know how, your, you know how your, your, your daddy loves that venison, that soup that you make. And I'll tell you what. Esau's out there hunting. First day of deer season. And here's what I want you to do. I want you to go get a goat. A young kid goat. Kill it. Skin it. And put that goat skin on you. Because Esau, your, your, your brother, is a hairy man. And Jacob was a smooth man. He didn't have any, he didn't have any hair on his chest, so to speak. You know? so, so he does that. He walks in. And, and the old man's almost blind. He can't see. So he, you would think he would be easily be deceived. And it's a picture of a pattern that when somebody wants to deceive you, they will go to great lengths. In a deception. So he comes in there and he says, Daddy, I, I, I got you some of that venison you really like because I want your blessing. First off, the old man, he says, how did, how did you get a deer so quickly, my son? Oh, here comes one of the patterns. Daddy, what can I say? The Lord just brought him to me. See? You want a real good deception? Bring God into it. So he comes over. He puts the soup down, chili, whatever it was. And uh, the old man, takes a whiff of it, you know, of the, of, of, of the boy standing there. And he says, you know what? This is really confusing. I may be blind and I can't see, but I got to tell you, it smells like Esau but it sounds like Jacob. That's a great pattern. Because in every deception, something just won't be right. I mean, my favorite expression is, are you smelling what you're selling? You really want me to believe that? I mean, we are afraid, something rotten in Denmark. I've never understood that phrase. I've never been to Denmark. Maybe everything's rotten in Denmark. I don't know. How many times have somebody said, I don't know, it doesn't smell right. Really? What does it smell right? You know the first thing your dog does in the morning or when you're an animal and you take them out to go to the bathroom, first thing they do is stick their nose up in the air and take a whiff to see if anything's, everything's okay. You can do the same thing. You just got to go to the doctor and get those nostrils enlarged and you can smell forever. No, you use the Bible principles. 
you can say, you can see, you know what, it, it smells like this, but it sounds like this. Then a little bit later on, oh, this is, gets better. We talked about this Thursday night. I gave you a little heads up. In Genesis chapter 37, when the boys now, Jacob's boys, remember Jacob deceived his daddy with a goat. Now, when years later, when he has his boys, and the boys don't like Joseph, and they want to kill Joseph, what they do is, is that they, they, they're going to kill him, and then somebody says, put him in a hole, and then the Midianites come along, and they say, let's just sell him. We can get a couple cases of beer out of this kid. Let's do it. So they sell him to the Midianites, and they say, what are we going to tell our daddy? And one of them says, I got an idea. Go get a goat out of the herd, a kid. And let's kill that goat, skin it, and then we'll take and put the blood of that goat all over Joseph's coat of many colors, and we'll go back and tell our daddy that a wild beast killed him. You know what they did? They used the same deception to deceive their daddy that their daddy used to deceive his brother. In other words, when you live a life of deception, it passes on to your children. Just as sure as I'm sitting here, standing here, I am here. I'll show you another one. We talked about this Thursday night, David and, and Absalom. Your sin becoming the sin of your children, only worse. In 2 Samuel chapter 11, David sinned with Bathsheba. He goes up on a rooftop and he sees her and falls into sin. And years later, after Absalom is born, he has four boys, Absalom is born. And in 2 Samuel chapter 16, verse 21, 22, Absalom turned total rebellion against his father, David. He wants to destroy him. He wants to take the kingdom from him. He wants to be king, and he wants to dethrone his own dad. So he gets some advice, and you know what he does? He takes all of David's concubines, and in front of all Israel, he puts a tent, and he goes in and defiles his dad with those concubines, and when you study the passage, it's on the same roof that his daddy sinned in. Only worse. And I teach you to see the patterns. And in understanding the principles involved, then take those principles and that pattern and a word fitly spoken, fit it into the problem. Don't give them stuff that isn't going to help anything. Don't give them your own homespun theology about grandma's version of how to fix the cold. You go to the Bible, you get the pattern, you get the principles, and then you, a word fitly spoken, fit it in. Every issue, every problem, every stronghold, a man will, will, will have, you'll find an answer to it in the patterns and its principles. The patterns will show you how they got into sin, and the patterns will show you how you get them out of it. And when you don't do that, then you'll wind up giving bad advice that may uh, in, will ensure almost for sure that they'll never fix the issue. Or as Pastor Wannapee with Love Potion Number 9, uh, is, he destroys the whole situation and it's impossible. And you know what, kid, you're in way over your head. You've got to get back to the principles. Now our verse says, moving on through here, a word fitly spoken, here it comes, is like apples of gold. Now, apples in the Bible are a picture of the Word of God or Christ. You'll find in Proverbs chapter 7, verse 2, where Israel was told to keep thy commandments and live, and my law as the apple of your eye. Now, as I said, apples in the Bible will always be a picture of God in Christ. Over there in Psalm 17, uh, uh, Psalms uh, uh, 178, it talks, about, it talks about the apple of God's eye. Deuteronomy 32, it does. In Joel chapter 1, in Zechariah chapter 2, all references of how that the Word of God is likened to apples. And then there's a song of Sodom in chapter 2, verse 3, where for you and for me, Christ is likened to an apple tree. 
And it says there in 2 verse 3, As the apple trees among the wood, so is my beloved among the sons. I sat down under his shadow with great delight, and his fruit was sweet to my taste. That fruit that he's talking about is the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians chapter 5, verse 22 and 23. Nine of them. Now, watch this. The Word of God in Christ is likened to apples. So what do we do with that? It never ceases to amaze me how the devil will take the truth of the Word of God and turn it around to try to grab the honor and glory and make Christ and paint things in the Bible in a negative way. You realize that the forbidden fruit taught by almost everybody started with the Roman Catholic Church way back in the day. That when Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, everybody believes and tells you that that forbidden fruit was an apple. When in the truth of the matter is, the apple is a picture of the Word of God. But that's what the devil does. He'll take the apples that are a picture of the Word of God. An apple a day keeps the doctor away. An apple a day will keep the devil away, spiritually speaking. And he takes that concept and he makes it the forbidden fruit. And everybody today, if you would ask them, all down through history, unless they were really a Bible believer and they knew it was a grape, only forbidden fruit in the Bible was the vine tree, if you would ask them, they would say, oh, it was an apple. My grandma was smarter than all of them when you would ask her, Grandma, what, was that fruit, forbidden fruit an apple? And she'd look down through her glasses and say, no, son, it wasn't the apple that was the problem. It was the pear on the ground. Adam and Eve, pear. Stay with it. Stay with it. Okay, here we go. C-130 rolling. Now, come on, wake up here. He's going. Back in the 40s, the McGuire sisters, during the war, when everybody was off the war, the McGuire sisters, they all sang the song, Don't Sit Under the Apple Tree with Anybody Else But Me. And it was a reference that if the love of your life was like the apple and the apple tree, and that represented your love, and while he's away fighting the war, don't sit under that tree with anybody else. And that's what the Lord says. You're saved, and you're on your way to heaven. Why in the world are you sitting under the apple tree with somebody else other than him? The devil will always try to take a cheap shot at the Word of God to take something that is right and holy and perfect and an incredible example and make it the forbidden fruit that brought sin upon mankind. When the truth of the matter is, the only thing that got you out of that sin was those golden apples. See how he works? You're welcome. So the Word fitly spoken, the Word of God, is like apples of gold. Now, gold, we know from our previous studies, is, represents the deity of Christ, 1 Corinthians chapter 3. So based on our verse, the fitting of the word that is likened to golden apples, spiritual health, fitting that to your issue will be the only solution that will, that will solve all the problems that you have in your relationship with Christ. I, I, I watched the midterm elections this year and you know, I didn't really care who won, but one of the things that, that I looked at and that I was interested in was the uh, passing of the, of, of the bill for, for veterans for, to get marijuana for their, for, their, for their issues. And many of them were suffering from PTSD. And, uh, you know, I've talked with many, 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 many of them. And, and uh, somehow in our society today, we thought that smoking marijuana and getting high and forgetting your pain would be better than trusting the Lord Jesus Christ as your own personal Savior and letting the Holy Spirit of God and the apples of gold fix your problem. You and me that were older, I know John Christensen would be around that time, so would Gary, some of you older guys that were in the service uh, during the Vietnam War. Do you know what marijuana did to the soldiers in Vietnam? It destroyed the morality to fight a war. When they got into Vietnam, you could have all the drugs you wanted. I mean, you could have heroin, you could have marijuana, you could have everything that you wanted. It was there. 
and it ruined our army. It got to the place where guys were so hopped up on drugs and guys were so hopped up high on marijuana that you was afraid to put somebody out on ambush or put somebody out on a listening post or put somebody out on a, on a point someplace because of the fact that they're so ridiculously high uh, because it was so easy to get. Let me tell you something. If you take human nature who's got a problem and you say to human nature, you can get into the Bible, do the work of an evangelist, study the show thyself approved, dig in there, come to church, get involved, let us help you, we'll teach you, spend the rest of your life studying the Bible, or smoke a marijuana cigarette. Which one do you think human nature is going to take? It's the most ridiculous thing on the planet. Now, I got to say this. If you're dying of terminal cancer or you, you're in some kind of pain and you're terminal, I, I have no problem with medical marijuana. If you're going to die and it relieves the pain, it's no different than putting them on, uh, you know, whatever of those drugs they give you that uh, takes the pain away, morphine, yeah, or something like that. I'm, I don't have a problem with that. But I want to tell you something. In a real-life scenario where you're not going to die, you're going through some trauma, I get it. Let me ask you a question. Have you ever read Fox's Book of Martyrs? Do you think the trauma they went through of being persecuted by the Roman Catholic Church to the point that they were butchered by the hundreds of millions, put in prison, watched their kids being fed to pigs and they wouldn't deny Christ? Do you think they didn't go through some traumatic stress? I can just see them now, the Waldensians and the Albigensians and all those over there, their kids down there and mom and dad over in the corner smoking a joint so they can get past it. Really? You know, you know what got them through it? The only thing that will get you through anything in life. It's the Lord Jesus Christ taking the principles of the Word of God and the patterns and fitting them into your world. Everything else is a temporary fix. Nothing, those things just like Prozac or all of the post-depression, they will not fix your problem. They'll put you in a diluted state so you don't think about it, but the next morning you wake up and the drugs were off, you're right back where you were. You need something that is absolute lasting that'll fix you for the rest of your life, and it's apples of gold. Amen. Not wacky tobacco. This is my old sergeant used to call. I never smoked drugs. I never smoked cigarettes. I never, I ain't never had a beer in my life. I don't, I haven't ever gotten high. But boy, I've been around guys who did. I didn't want them covering my six, I guarantee you. I don't want them out there where their senses are all wind up and they're on a yellow submarine in strawberry fields forever. That's not where I'm at. But those little yellow guys are going to come over that wire about three o'clock in the morning and all hell is going to break loose, boy. And I don't need you over there saying, Ah, uh, uh, no, I don't need it, man. You call in fire coordinates on artillery, you call it in on yourself. Christianity today, for the most part, has moved outside the Bible and its principles. And we've replaced it with as Colossians chapter 2, verse 8 says, with philosophy vain deceit to traditions of men and the rudiments of the world. You know, uh, Proverbs chapter 19, verse 21 says, there's many devices in a man's heart, but the counsel of the Lord, that shall stand. All of this stuff today <clears throat> is all devices in a man's heart. They don't know how to fix your problem. Amen. They don't know how to deal with your issues. They don't know how, they don't know how to get to the core problem that you have. Because fundamentally, they don't understand that men and women on planet Earth only have problems for one of two reasons. And everything else is just a symptom of that basic fundamental problem. If you're unsaved, there isn't anything in this life that's going to, that's going to fix your problems. If you're saved and out of fellowship with God, there isn't any medicine anybody's going to give you that's going to fix. It's a spiritual issue between you and God in both cases. And the only way you're going to fix yourself is to fix your relationship with God because the Bible says before we were saved, we were enmity to God. We were God's enemy. And we allow all these devices to come in. 
We think that going this and doing that, now this is going to solve all these poor vets. And I thank God for them, boy, and the service that they did. But I got the answer to their problem. The answer to the problem is to trust the Lord Jesus Christ as your own personal Savior. Put your faith and trust in the Word of God and then get to the apple tree as fast as you can and fill up as many bushel baskets as you can with the apples of gold. Then he says, a word fitly spoken is like apples of gold in pictures of silver. I don't know how many times I've told you over the years that the Bible's a picture book. And the greatest picture of, found in the Bible, and there's lots of pictures, but the greatest picture found in the Bible is the picture of God's salvation. The fact that God loved you and me so much and almost everything that you find and everything in the Bible, the underlying theme will be the only way out is through the Lord Jesus Christ. God will, through the stories that contain the patterns and the principles, he'll paint a picture for you so you can better see what he's saying. Along with that, I have to tell you this. I've been in this business almost 50 years. I know you're probably sick of me saying that, but I, it's true. I'm sick of saying it too. I just wish you'd listen to me. I wouldn't have to say it anymore. On some things in life, I do know what I'm talking about. <laughs> Preaching. Now listen to me. All right, have a little humor. Your funny bone got tickled. Now I'm going to whack you. Here we go. <laughs> Preaching is a lost art today. It really is. And, uh, you know, uh, in guys who collect World War II stuff, one of the most, even during the war, one of the most desirable items in the guys fighting in the Pacific was the samurai swords. And, uh, you know, the officers had one and the NCOs had one. You could tell the difference if you knew what you're looking for. But they were a treasured item. They still are today. Your average legitimate samurai sword probably brings up to $12,000 today. And, uh, and, you know, and it's a thing where uh, the reason why is because I know we fought the war in 1940 to 1945. But those swords were ceremonial swords that were probably made back four or five hundred years before those people were ever born and handed down through the family. And the swordsmanship, craftsmanship of making those swords, unbelievable. I saw a guy one time that had a real one, and he held it up with the blade sharp end up, and his, his wife threw a handkerchief up in the air, and it fell down, just drifted down over that thing and cut that thing right in half. It was so razor sharp. They're, they're, they're tempered unbelievably. If you take the handle off and take the tang off, there'll be a date in there and a, and a sword maker who made it. You've got to look real close, but it's right there. It's, it, 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 you know, waka made in 19, uh, 18, 14, 1452. Mm, it's there. First thing you do when you buy one of those, if you know what you're doing, is you take the handle off and you look at the tang. Now, I know, most of you think tang is that orange drink that you drink in the morning before you go to school. More to it than that. They're incredible. And the craftsmanship in those swords was unbelievable. It's the difference between that and preaching today is the difference between finding a samurai sword, which is worth twelve, fifteen thousand dollars $15,000, and going to Mickey's surplus and buying one for nineteen ninety-five. They both look good hanging on a wall. But Mickey's, you couldn't cut your way out of a cardboard box. It's a piece of junk made in Taiwan. They brought it over with all that rubber vomit that they put on the planes when they sell it, and you buy it, you know, little things, little trick stuff, gag stuff. Oh, who threw up on the floor? Ha <laughs> it wasn't, you know. They ship it over. We buy it because we're so stupid. They're made in China. You know, they turn them out, you know. These little Chinese guys over there turning out these little swords. Here comes another one for them suckers in America, you know. One time I was at a gun show, and a guy was selling swords. This shows you how stupid people are. I was right there at the table when this kid come up. Beautiful samurai sword. They weren't real ones, but I mean, they were real nice, good copies. So he's looking at this, and really, he wants to buy one. So I go on my way, you know. So I went to the bathroom, and about 15 minutes later, about 15 minutes later, I see him coming in to the bathroom 
watching him, blood just running down every place. And I saw this incredible gash he'd cut in his hand. And I didn't say anything because he obviously didn't need me and my encouragement, you know. <laughs> but that hurt, doesn't it? <laughs> you know? So I go back to the guy who sold it. And there's blood all over the floor and they're wiping it up. And I asked the guy, I says, was that that kid in the bathroom? He says, yeah, yeah. I said, what happened? He says, these kids. He says, he pulled that sword of that thing and took a rag and ran it right down that sword. <laughs> oh, in, any, in any language. Ouch. That, that hurt. Stupid. But that's the difference between preaching today. You, get, you used to get the real stuff. Now everything's a cheap 1995 imitation. And it looks good hanging on the wall, but when you really look inside it, it's the difference between classical art of Rembrandt and Michelangelo. Oh, man. I mean, the, the great painting that he did, Night Watch. Uh, Michelangelo, the Sistine Chapel, he painted on his back. Took him 20-some years to paint that sucker. Incredible. It's the difference between a classical piece of artwork and modern art looks like somebody threw up on the canvas. And you're left to figure out what it is. Hey, a pastor's job in preaching or teaching is to have the ability that through his preaching to have a picture of what God is doing emerge and reveal itself through the truth of the Word of God. And it's the difference between the old generation of preachers and the new generation of preachers. This is the missing element today. So they make up uh, for it with light shows, rock bands, Worship singers up on the stage, dancing, back and forth, smoking lights. And by the time the guy gets up to say something, you've been so entertained that you don't really care what he says. Back in the day when I was trained, this would be 1976, 75 really, before anybody got sent out of that church, they had to show evidence that they knew the Bible. They weren't interested in just putting out a lot of fluff. And we, in 1975, had to go before a group of guys and lay out ten Bible doctrinal questions. Ten teachings. They span from Genesis to Revelation. And those ten were so designed that they really laid out the core value system of, of really what the Word of God is. And you weren't allowed to use your Bible. No notes. And uh, you had to take about 20, 30 minutes on each one and then tie everything together. They called it the depth test. We called it the death test. And let me say, if you could do all ten and tie them together and get, uh, you had some depth to you. They were not interested in just sending out a bunch of fluff. They wanted to know that if that church sent you out and put their stamp of approval on you, that you knew what you were doing. And they were ten of the most absolute incredible questions that when you looked at them and you answered them, there was no doubt in your mind you knew what you were doing, especially when you pulled them all together and tied them all together. No, I've never required that here. It's a different time. But I do teach you on a, such a level that in time you will get them all and can use them and make, and many of you probably could pass the test without any problem because of the depth that you have. But they all ten will lay out and require you to have the right patterns down to make the Bible fit together for you first and then your ability to fit it to somebody else's needs. Simply, where God is at and what God is doing. Understanding the pattern of Israel, understanding the pattern for church, understanding the pattern for you and for me. All fitting together through the principles. And Ephesians says in, in, in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 21, it says, all the building, talking about the church of Jesus Christ, fitly framed together. It goes together. It fits. Ephesians 4, 16 says, the whole body fitly joined together. That's you fitting yourself to the Word of God and fitting into that book so you can take a word fitly spoken and give it to whatever that need is. The verse says, apples of gold and pitchers of silver, so is a wise reprover upon the obedient ear. 
The two main elements of you and me getting all God has for us has absolutely nothing to do with how smart you are. It has nothing to do with where you went to school, your IQ, or your abilities. The determining factor of what you get from God or what you don't get from God comes down to the patterns. Have you learned and dedicated yourself to the patterns? Fitting words for all occasion. That's what you learn here. <clears throat> the ability to fit the words of God into. It'll be based on two things. The apples of gold, who he is, and the pictures of silver, understanding what he did for you. Nothing will motivate you to learn the Bible. Nothing will motivate you to give back to God what he's done for you. Nothing will make it, nothing. No message, no nothing. I mean, the message may be point you in the right direction, but the only motivation that will motivate you to give back God your life totally and completely will be the day in your life when you completely understand to the best of our human ability what he did for you. And most of God's people never do a thing back for God because in their life they never understand who he is and what he did for them. Understanding the fitting of these two concepts into your life will transform you into the vessel that will be bring honor and glory to the Lord. So a word fitly spoken is like apples of gold in pictures of silver. Learning the word of God to the degree that you have the ability in any given scenario, any circumstance, any situation, no matter who it may be, to be able to take the word and its concepts and the patterns through the principles of the Word of God and fit them to the problem and give them the answer based on the principles of the Word of God. That's what needs to happen. That is one of the greatest verses anywhere. A word fitly spoken is like apples of gold in pictures of silver. Getting the Word of God and through that, getting the picture of God's redemption in your life and then what God wants you to do with it in the lives of others. Next week, we're going to take the next verse now I want to talk to you about the obedient ear. And we'll talk about that next week. Let's stop right there. Let's